They had set up an ice hole for the bathroom, placing a wooden box with a polystyrene seat over it and fencing it round with a windbreaker. It was the best appointed lavatorial facility the world had ever seen, facing the corrugated cliffs of the Mackay Glacier and, to one side, thousands of kilometres of ice. But one day a geologist slithered across camp with his wind pants round his knees. Crikey, Mike! I yelled. What's wrong? He had been enjoying the view from the Kazi when a seal came up the ice hole. Hot, fishy breath, apparently. The five-strong, bent-thick geology team working on the frozen Ross Sea were sending an ROV, remotely operated vehicle, to the bottom to capture images. Debris dispersal yields clues to the speed of glacier erosion, a factor in climate variability. I looked out from my tent. I left the flap open during the bright nights, at creamy ice walls reflecting saffron sun, or an arc of lenticular clouds, or the plumes of Mount Erebus marbling the sky. Like Christopher Isherwood arriving in Venice, I was astonished to think that the Antarctic had been there every day of my life. The group's field assistant, a New Zealander, impressively bearded, even in a barbate land, had found among camp paraphernalia a board to place under my sleeping mat to prevent Iridikian descent into the ice. It was a happy camp. The three junior geologists, all with sunburned faces and white eyelids, were intrinsically decent people, but inevitably took their cue from the project leader, their boss, effectively. This top-down cultural influence poisoned my residence in the Antarctic six months later, far from Mackay, I want to show here at the outset that the sailing has not been plain. De Beauvoir was right in the part about the sea and the poles and the thousand joys. You could still feel born on the wrong side. In the course of the painful experience I will describe later in the chapter, I began to think about the actual position and the perceived role of women on the road. Terra Incognita was my third book and I was 34. But somehow, until then, I just got on with it. I spent seven months in the Antarctic. Records do not reveal a particularly cold year, but I once experienced minus 115 with windchill. The sun often shone. At the pole itself, some days I strolled around without a jacket. Breath came short as the Earth's atmosphere is at its most shallow at the two axes of a rotating planet. I was walking on a layer of ice a third as high as Everest. The altitude is 2,850 metres, and the combination of elevation and shallow atmosphere means the body recedes half its normal oxygen supply. At another camp, when it was very cold but windless, and after a pair of emperor penguins had visited our row of pup tents, a colleague threw boiling tea in the air and it froze before it hit the ice, tinkling modestly as it shattered. A field camp always involves donkey work and I took on the worst jobs as a means of ingratiating myself. For long hours, I sat on a box on a frozen lake, spooling hundreds of metres of tubing into the depths, 
or glued by eyes to a gauge on a twin otter dashboard to ensure the pilot maintained a fixed altitude as a radar was sucking data from the ice sheet below as we flew. This was indeed a terrible job. Before takeoff, the skipper had warmed the engine with a hairdryer powered by a small generator. We were close to the sky-high nunataks in Palmerland at the base of the Antarctic Peninsula, the long continental finger tapering towards South America. It was the end of a poor season and the scientists had gone home, leaving eight support staff. The cook tent was permanently flooded with brown ice water and when I arrived the men were passing round a catering tin of peaches with an upright spoon in it, penguin feathers stuck to the label. Field Camp Tucker had often been frozen for a long period, not in a freezer, but in an Antarctic storage hut.